Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to a very special episode of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. Now, as you've probably seen from the episode title and the description, we're doing things a little bit differently today because we have a very special guest joining me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana this week, and that is none other than Mr. Marco Kiris, the man who was Nicholas Cage's official stand-in from 1994 to 2005, travelled up and down the roads with Nicolas Cage, worked on him with over 20 films in what would arguably be the height of Nicolas Cage's career. So to say that this man has some stories, has got some tales from behind the scenes in his own fascinating, interesting, interesting life as well, is a slight understatement. Now what a pleasure it was to have Marco join me for this. We get into uh, his beginnings in the industry, how he came to no Nicolas Cage charting his journey from Trapped in Paradise all the way up to Lord of War and the Weatherman, that little-known Superman flick that Nicolas Cage was nearly starring in, and lots, lots other things as well. This is a fantastic conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. With that said, let's quickly get the admin out of the way. If you enjoy the podcast and want to keep up to date with what we're doing here, you can find me on Twitter at Cage underscore podcast. I'm on Instagram at Cage Rage Pod and Threads now as well. And of course, TikTok at Cage Rage Podcast. All the links in the description as per usual. But without further ado, let's just jump right into this one. It's Daryl Edge chatting with Marco Curious. Enjoy. Done. This week, I am joined by a very, very special guest on what I call my journey to true Cage Nirvana. From humble beginnings raised by immigrant Greek parents in Toronto, Canada, before ending up in Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting, he would end up working in 20 movies from 1994 to 2005, working as a stand-in for Nicolas Cage at the height of his career. Now, what a pleasure and privilege it is to welcome Mr. Marco Kiris to Cage Rage and Nicolas Cage podcast. Marco, how the devil are you doing today? Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, absolute pleasure to sort of have you on as well. I've been very excited for this, uh, to have this conversation because yours is, you know, and I, and I will admit I have a little bit of bias here, but I think it's one of the most interesting and unique stories that I've ever sort of encountered uh, as well. Um, but to sort of kick things off, if you could tell us about sort of your your start here, sort of, um, you know, your younger years, what got you from Toronto to L.A., um, and how it was that you sort of found yourself in the, in the crazy world that people call acting as well. Yeah, well, I basically, at the end of it all, I was a failed actor, just to be honest and real about it. Right. But I had uh, no direction. I'm not sure if other people have direction, but I was just kind of like drifting way back in the 80s and trying to figure out what I was going to do, other than I was good at hospitality and I worked in restaurants and 
I ended up, uh, I've always yearned to live in France and I ended up going to France and living in Paris and um, didn't really know anything other than just, you know, being a waiter. I got a job as, uh, as a waiter in a restaurant, which was an American restaurant, but owned by Greek Americans who uh, really kind of took me under their wing. And then believe it or not, while I was living there um, and learning French, they asked me if I would go to Los Angeles of all places to work and run their Greek American restaurant in the Valley. And that was the start of where it all happened basically. And um, which is really weird because it was a unlikely <laughs> situation in the world. So I packed it all up within a few months and I went to LA illegally, of course, had a lot of issues, worked there, did my thing, learned about LA, learned about actors, movie stars. And within that time frame, I was uh, taking acting classes like anybody else, just because mm -hmm. I thought I was there and I would kind of see what it was like. And um, I sucked. <laughs> really good. And I took some uh, really prominent acting classes, great schools, but I suck shit. Like some people shouldn't be in that field of, of trying to make it as an actor. I was just a guy who thought maybe I could just break through something. And that was never going to happen. So anyway, one thing led to the next as I kept working, and then I was illegally, then I got caught, then I went to jail, then I had to leave the country, then I ran a, you know, back home and made it back to Toronto. This is a very long story in a book that I'm writing. And I finally went back to Toronto, gave it all up after already living in LA, meeting pretty much every single star in Los Angeles, because they were star-studded restaurants that I worked in, sure. other than Nicolas Cage, if you can believe it. So, um, But I did meet his wife at the time. Um, or the wife later was Patricia Arquette. Wow. She, was acting, she was in my acting class, um, strangely enough. And uh, strangely enough, I did a scene with her in uh, in the acting school that we went to, and I sucked. It was so bad, it was embarrassing. And uh, <laughs> it was so damn good. And she called me out on it. She just thought I was very, uh, um, you know, stale and, and very surfacy, which I was. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, when you hear from people who are real actor actors, you know you got to get out of the business. So oh, when yes. I went back to Toronto, I went back to restaurants. I signed up with an extras agency um, just to make extra money because it was a rough time in the '90s. And uh, during that time, they offered me an audition to go and be a stand-in for an actor called Nicolas Cage. Oh, so. Yeah. I went into that audition, which was by Niagara Falls, believe it or not. I didn't even own a car at the time, so I had to like chum up with somebody else to drive me there. And uh, I was living in a basement apartment. I was beyond broke and, um, you know, barely getting by uh, in life, like, you know, peanuts, basically eating mm -hmm. pasta and coffee daily. Talk about broke. And uh, I got the job. And I'd never done it before. Uh, of course, the qualifications are you have to be part of the unions. I was part of SAG after an actor in Canada um, mm -hmm. through tiny bit parts. They were just fluky parts that I got. So within that time frame that I was that I did some things, I got the union cards and I never gave them up. Lo and behold, that was my golden ticket. Because if I gave them up, even though I wasn't acting, I would never be a part of the union today and I could never have worked. Yeah. So I ended up working, uh, and I already had a green card at that time. By that time, I won the lottery, and I'd won a green card. And so the fairy tale story goes on that I meet Cage on a film set, and he thinks I'm like, you know, the really, the guy to be the stand-in going forward. Sure. And, 
And uh, so while I was on that film set, it was my very first time doing it. Didn't really know what I was doing, but just kind of like following orders. One thing led to the next. They thought I was a guy and I became the guy. And so I started to travel with him thinking, you know, I'll do one, two, three movies and just kind of figure it out and move on in life. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it would last 10 years. So one thing led to the next and it just went on and on and on and on and on and on. And luckily I kept my green card because if I gave it away, I wouldn't be able to work in the States. So that green card became a citizenship. I kept my union cards, which allowed me to flourish financially. I had no idea what I was doing. All of it was just because I was a part of all these things. And then I'd won the lottery. Like yeah. I had nothing to do with anything. And then I just kept pursuing what was happening. And everything just kept going forward and exploding to a level of like, you know, we went from like leaving Las Vegas to became the summer of cage of doing the rock and con air and all these other films. And I'm not a physically fit guy. And I was even less physically fit back then. It was really tough to be on a set 12, 14 hours a day. Sure. Five months. I mean, he was a rock star. Mm-hmm. I was like, what am I doing? I mean, that's, I mean, just to hear all that, what a, what a whirlwind of a life that is to so go, go from, you know, you've got to go back to Canada. Then Patricia Arquette is telling you, you're not going to make it. You're living off pasta, which sounds like my student years, quite frankly. So I, <laughs> I know that diet very, very well. Um, I was quite curious though, when you sort of got that, I suppose that call about the stand-in work, what was sort of the process there for being a stand-in? Because I will sort of hold my hands up and say, uh, you know, I wasn't too, shall we say, au fait with what it means to be a stand-in and what being a stand-in is. Um, did you know much of like the stand-in uh, role prior to the audition? And I suppose talking to you as well, there's um, no one, I think, better qualified to answer the question of, you know, what is a stand-in and what are the responsibilities um, expected of the stand-in as well? Stand-in basically is somebody who's going to stand there for the actor while they set up lighting. It's always about lighting and camera movement. And you have to have a likeliness of the actor that you're standing in for to help Mm. the photographer light the situation. For example, the dark hair, the coloring, the shirt. Um, If this was it, I would be sitting here and I'd be wearing the same shirt as he would. And because it reflects off the light, you you set up every scene, every shot, every angle with a stand-in. And uh, you get the script as well. So you understand what the script entails. You understand the scenes. um, They're done. They're, you know, you have to go through all of it daily. Many times you go through the rehearsals um, without the actor because it's much more emotion oriented Mm -hmm. versus intense dialogue if it is intense dialogue they do the rehearsals like three four actors in a scene and you basically follow the actor whatever he does for for cage for example if he's an adaptation he's got a an intense scene you watch every little movement he does because that's what you're going to mimic once they set up the shot so they'll come in they'll do their scene they're like did you watch the shot yes great let's recreate that for technical purposes and so you'll spend five six hours working out what the actor had done and then it's tweaked slightly to accommodate lighting the cinematographer and the director's like um liking and then the actor comes back and then we kind of like show them the marks of where they are during certain parts of the scene and that's what the standing does but you have to have the height the body type the hair color all that stuff to really help them 
Right. That's really interesting because I, you know, obviously I have the benefit, you know, we're looking at each other through, uh, you know, d- digital sort of cameras here. And obviously I can see the resemblance of yourself to Cage, which is honestly striking. Um, when you sort of got that standing call, and I suppose prior to that as well, because um, Cage, had, I think probably prior to 1994, done 20 or so movies at that time himself. Had anyone ever sort of said to you before that, oh, you look a little bit like this guy called Nicholas Cage? Um, were you aware on a personal level of any kind of resemblance to him prior to that fateful sort of standing encounter that you have in 94? Yeah, often, actually, Daryl. And even in the 1980s, so there are certain shots of him in, in his 80s movies of, you know, Moonstruck and all that other stuff back then. He was amazing. Um, I have photographs of me that actually resemble him. Both right. tall and skinny, with the hair, little mustache thing going on. And I was kind of taken back myself. And they just thought I'd be a perfect fit. When I walked in the audition, they said, you're hired. Like, it took all but two minutes. So I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, wow, that's an easy gig. I, I didn't need the money <laughs> for the money, to be honest. Um, I knew it was a gig. I knew they were going to pay well. Uh, they were putting me up in a hotel. They were taking care of you. They were going to drive you to and from the set. I mean... It was pretty perk intensive for the first film I'd ever done. And the truth is I needed money. And uh, and, and it was a well-paying gig to start off with. Oh. I didn't realize how hard the job was going to be and what it took to be on a film set. Like I'd been on film sets as an actor, but it's one or two days. And it's basically self-absorbed thoughts as an actor, two or three lines on a show or something. And you don't really know who anybody is. When you're on as a stand-in working for the star, Daryl, you really learn the ins and outs of filmmaking almost from a filmmaker's point of view. Because Mm. now you're working directly with the cinematographer and the director and the the lead actor. And uh, with that, you're dealing with the script supervisor, the key camera operators, the key grip electrics. All of this is kind of like a moving dance that never really stops until they're ready to roll. And I didn't know any of the stuff. You just have to work with everybody. There's multiple unions and, uh, you know, two to 300 people on the set, so many names to remember and so many positions to remember. And you got to like drop your ego and just be a part of it. Yeah. And you're representing the actor, no matter who the actor is. And you've got to work in that, in his, in his character as best as you can be in that character, which I studied all the time. I would study his movements. I studied how he would do his scenes and try to mimic him as best as possible. I mean, I can only imagine, um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and I suppose, again, the bias of having a Nicolas Cage podcast, um, I've seen a few of his movies at this point. I'll put it that way. I suppose, suppose for yourself, you first start on um, Trapped in Paradise in 94. When you're, I suppose, more accurate, the question should be, how does someone um, get into the mindset of Nicolas Cage and try to, um imitate that because i think it's fair to say um you know and i and i say this with all sincerity my personal favorite actor i think the world of the man but how how do you try and match that uh that uniqueness that eccentricity that energy um was there at any point where you're sort of in the sidelines thinking um what how how am i supposed to do what he's doing over there uh i i knew i was never going to be able to achieve that but just to be honest <laughs> He's 
to me, as especially at the beginning, he's too unpredictable. He's extremely well rehearsed. He may sound like he's off the cuff, but there's nothing off the cuff about this man. He's he's beyond intelligent, and he premeditates his moves and his character. He knows every line from every actor on the entire set. There is nothing the guy misses. And I didn't know that going into it. I just kind of like goofballish, kind of mimicked him. Mm-hmm. Um in my kind of goofy way, which was never really on par, but it actually made the crew laugh because I, I did what I could, but I looked like, you know, Daffy Duck, you know, trying to mimic <laughs> the, the actor. And it, it yeah. almost became humorous to them because then they got a kick out of it all the time. It was never on par, especially with certain things that he does and kind of crazy shit that he can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just had fun playing with it. I didn't realize that it was going to like work for me. Um, but for the most part, I was, you know, just following what he did, you know, as best as mm. possible. And, and I knew that I couldn't keep up with the unpredictability, especially like in leaving Las Vegas, which was so intense. But uh, yeah. so I just did the best that I could with what I had that would satisfy the director and the cinematographer. Yeah, absolutely. So you come on to, uh, we come to Trapped in Paradise in 1994, which is a, a movie that has been described, I read by the cast, as trapped in bullshit. There seems to be a lot of just issues sort of behind the scenes. This being, I suppose, your first, you know, your first standing gig, you get there, um, all this sort of, I guess, apparent chaos is going on behind the scenes. Uh, what is your sort of mindset thinking like, are you thinking like, like, is this this? Uh, is this what being a stand-in is? Is it always going to be this hectic? Um, did you could you have foreseen from your experience on Trapped in Paradise that this was going to carry on for you know another ten years? Never in a million years. I thought it was a one-shot deal, and then I was going to go back to my shitty little apartment and try to get a job as a waiter all over again and try yeah. to figure out how to be a maitre d. And maybe years later, I'll own up you know, alone, some greasy Greek diner of some sort. You know, I had no direction after that film. It was a one-shot deal, and that was the end of it. I was never going to go back to the States, so I was going to do this movie and say, okay, life is fine. At least I paid off a credit card bill, and at least I'm out of debt on my visa. You know, that was my entire long-term thinking, if you can believe it. So while I'm on set, I discover about filmmaking and how chaotic the fucking movie was, and everything (laughs) organized. And so, in my opinion, so fucked up, I thought, holy fuck, is this how they make movies? <laughs> this is a disaster. And uh, nobody was really communicating. The director was in his own headspace somewhere. Uh, I don't think he was mentally ever on set, uh, other than the physical aspect of it. Though he was a blast. He was a big teddy bear, to, in my opinion. Actually, loved me. I love the guy. But I don't think he had any um, directing chops. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as I didn't have acting chops, he didn't have any sense of direction. That was his first movie to direct. And the cinematographer kind of came up the bat and kind of like helped get through the scenes. And the actors kind of like listened to the cinematographer who was a veteran cinematographer and they kind of directed themselves through the entire movie. And I just kind of listened to who had more authority in the moment. And I was just like, okay, well, he looks like he knows what he's doing. Let's mark it here because that sounds better. And I would kind of take over because I thought there was so much chaos that I kind of like said, yeah, the marks are here. These are the angles. This is the camera lens. This is where you got to be, Nick. And then I started to direct Nick into marks, not as acting, but I just mean because 
he was lacking the direction technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was too much else. It was freezing. It was nighttime. It was, you know, minus 40 outside. We were all cold. Everybody had sinus infections and the flu. It was miserable. And everybody wanted it done and gone. Nobody was happy on that film set. So I just kind of sped up the process to kind of direct the people around me so I could get into a warming shelter. Uh, <laughs> that's that my entire thought was that. And yeah. uh, so they can get through the scene faster. And we can move on to the next scene so I can get inside and have some hot chocolate. Like it, <laughs> it, Honestly, it was, it was going to end by April and I couldn't wait to get off the film set. Nick was amazing, uh, but I just needed to go home. but then it's like halfway through it it's just like fuck you're great at what you do and of course i didn't know what i was i didn't know that i was great and i still don't think i'm great but i certainly had a lot of common sense in in this unstructured chaotic film of insanity um i just kind of took over like a like a manager of a restaurant said no these are the marks this is how it's done this is where we should be and let's get on and the director actually liked that because I took charge of stuff. It's like, well, where is he going to stand? What's he doing? It's like, I think we've rehearsed it this way. We should do it that way. Great, great, great. Can you tell Nick? I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking, why am I telling Nick? <laughs> so it kind of ended up being that. And a stand-in's mm. position is not to direct an actor by any no. means. No. And uh, never direct him consciously. But uh, it, it became technical. And uh, because when he shows up on set, it's like, what the fuck? Where's the snowbanks? Where's this? What are we doing? It was that chaotic. So I helped guide him through the structure that I had just gone through to set up that scene. And uh, and then from there on, of course, he takes it to, you know, to his level. Absolutely. Well, I mean, in, in the most chaotic sense, you know, your introduction into the standing world, obviously you're there, um, as you said, in your mindset. Well, I'm just trying to pay off a credit card and get to somewhere warm right now. It's madness going on around the set. In the midst of all that as well, um, obviously there's, I know, with anything on IMDb, it's, you know, take it with a, some things with a pinch of salt, but there's reports that uh, Nick would step in and direct some scenes as well. With all this going on, you know, obviously everyone's tr- trying to scramble to get some kind of movie out of there. What were your, um, I suppose, first impressions of Nick up close and personal? And do you, do you recall your... Um, your first interactions with him and sort of the measure of the man that you got at that time. Uh, he was not uh, like uh, into this whole warm, cuddly, cuddly thing. And, and in his defense, he's an actor trying to get through the day in the country of Canada, in the cold at night on a very chaotic, disorganized film. And this guy has to perform. The last thing he's thinking about is like, I can't wait to be a buddy with this guy named Marco. You know, and uh, so I didn't expect anything. Also, we were instructed to never have eye contact with the actors and never communicate with the actors. According wow. to the never, ever talk to an actor, never give eye contact. So I ignored him more than he ignored me. It showed that he was kind of cold, but he wasn't cold. He was physically cold, but it was me who kept my distance. He approached me uh in the interim and asked me some nice questions and so forth. And then did some research on me through his assistant. And they were very cordial and very polite, invited me to the trailer and had conversations. I would never approach an actor on on the very first film and say like, why would I ever talk to him? You know, I was in it and I was going to be gone within two to three months. So I didn't expect any kind of chummy chummy. And Mm -hmm. and I think there's so many stand-ins 
that it's just another standard, but it's not even LA where he can kind of nurture a relationship and bring somebody with him. You know what yeah. I mean? It's a guy from Canada. Like, why would he chum me up to me? I'm a one-shot deal. But he saw something in me and offered me and said, you know, you should come and travel with me and come back to the States. And I had nothing going on. There was nothing. Didn't even have a job after this. And that's when I took the jobs. I was like, okay, well, it was better than being on unemployment because that was the next gig. <laughs> yeah. Being on unemployment until I got a job. So mm -hmm. I took it. And I just... I didn't know what was going to happen. So it was actually him being open to me versus me being open to him. I was just kind of quiet and kept my distance. Sure. So you come out of that with um, a full-time cage gig. So I can only assume that you're in your head space. You're thinking, well, I didn't expect this, but I think I can pay the credit card off now. So that's something it's not going to be exclusively past the going forwards. Uh, but we go from Trapped in Paradise to uh, Kiss of Death moving on next to this. Now, this one for me is notable in the sense that I think this is this is the bulkiest that Cage has ever been for a movie before or since. Um, was it something, uh, for fear of asking a silly question, was it something you were expected to do as well for the sake of the shots uh, where you had to bulk up as well? Um, I, I did So first of all, when they invited me to go to New York, I had to pay my way. The budget was very, very low. So they invited right. financially invite me. So they said, can you put yourself up in New York in an apartment? I'm thinking, New York, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so I called up a couple of friends of mine and they offered their sofa bed in Midtown and said, you can come and stay for free to work on this film. So I said, yeah, I got a free place to stay. And I took the train down. I didn't have money for a plane because uh, the pay was like 12, 15 bucks an hour. It was really like a lowbrow, low budget film. And when you're going to New York as somebody stand-in, they're already hating you. The Teamsters, the production, because there's so many New York stand-ins available. Oh, uh, right. That usually take the job. Like, why are they bringing in this dude from Canada? So I paid my way the entire time. You talk about paying your dues. Uh, I paid my way. I got myself on the set. Nobody picked me up from any location. I took the subways and the bus everywhere to get the set. And he was only working three to four days a week. So my, my pay structure was three to 400 bucks a week. I couldn't even afford to eat um, while I was in New York. So it was a real broke time for me to be there, but I was dedicated to do it. So it was, it was tough. To be there so that was the invite mm -hmm. to get there and it was hot and it was summertime and i hated working on that set the ad's were rough they were assholes and it's right. only good person i loved was the director and uh and he was kind of he was really nice to me and uh and the camera guy was great with me so they really kind of took me under their wings to help me out and cage was great so i didn't have time to bulk up is the, is the bottom line right. nor did i know that he was bulked up until I got to the set, and I'm like, holy fuck. He <laughs> and I was kind of flabby. and uh, But I did grow the goatee and the mustache, so I had the hair and the facial stuff going on. I certainly did not have the uh, body. They had a stunt guy for all that stuff. So I look fairly flabby and I'm a little overweight, but I did keep it from the neck up, which was the most important part, Daryl, was to keep yourself that physical neck part, the hair, and, and the facial hair. So I grew in all that stuff um, to please the cinematographer, to show them that I'm, you know, I'm part of the team. And, uh, and that helped a lot, but there's no way I could bulk up. I was like, wow, this guy's huge. Like he's like a wrestler, huge. 
Um, mm-hmm. I didn't bother because there was no point. Yeah. I would no. either stay or not stay. You know what I mean? They were going to go home back to Canada, take a maple leaf, you know, drink a lot of syrup and, and you know, fuck you. <laughs> I don't know. So I just, you know, they were not nice to me the entire time. I just didn't know if I was going to stay the next day. But I made it through the whole film and he stayed bulked in, in character. He was very happy to see me. And then they offered me the next job to go to L.A. for leaving Las Vegas, which I took because I knew L.A. very, very well. But New York was rough and I couldn't wait to get the fuck out of New York City. And I didn't know why anybody wanted to live in New York City in the 1990s. It was a shithole. <laughs> so no love lost for a kiss of death. And obviously sounds, you know, you've gone from trapped in paradise uh, to kiss in death to, I suppose, in your experience, not amazing experiences working on movies there uh, which sort of leads me into you know leaving las vegas obviously critically acclaimed movie uh, this is where cage would go on to win best acting awards for his performance in this one as well and i think my question to you would be with your mindset going from right i've had two really rough experiences right now um sort of been living sort of paycheck to paycheck you go into leaving las vegas are you sort of in the mindset based on the previous two movies that you know, is this what being a stand-in is? Is this what it's like? Is this one going to be an absolute stinker as well? And with it being an, an independent movie also, did you have any idea on the set that that movie was going to go on to receive the acclaim it did? No. Uh, and yes, the first question. I just thought it was going to be another shit show film. But again, I had nothing lined up, Daryl. And I didn't know what I was going to do after Kiss of Death. And it was only like a month or three weeks later. And I thought, well, I'm kind of like, I guess I'm going to do a third movie with, with Nicolas Cage. I thought, okay. And I, again, I could stay for free in LA. So I stayed again on a sofa bed um, in LA in Hollywood at a friend's place. And I rented a car. So um, renting a car and staying for free allowed me to actually pay the bills that I was there for. So I made no money again. It was like 12, 15 bucks. They called it these standing vouchers. And, uh, but he was in every single day. So I did work every single day. Production accepted me knowing that I'm going to make no money. So they just think that it's great. I paid my way to get down there. I paid my rent a car. I got a free apartment, all that stuff. So all I had to do was show up on the set and get paid the measly rate that they were paying at the time under mm-hmm. set. I was again in the unions and I was paid under an LA local. So they considered me a local with a local address. So it was easy for them and they didn't have to deal with any other paperwork. Um, so I just thought it was going to be another tough and rough film. But I thought, because I also heard that he was going to take a break after that. So I thought if if this just kind of like, and it was only a five-week shoot. And I thought, well, I can do the LA thing and it's five-week shoot. And I read the script and it didn't seem intense physically. Um, so I thought I can do this and then just go back home and get a job as a waiter. I just figured that would be it. And so when I got there, the film was very artsy, fartsy, was very gritty. There was not much dialogue on the on the uh, set. The director was very quiet, British, as you know, uh, Mike Figgis. He had your kind of tone. Um, I really had to like cock an ear to listen to him, kind of like you. Um, <laughs> he was very methodical. He was very uh, quiet about everything. He only spoke when he needed to speak. I also realized that he was the co-producer, writer, musician, and actor in the film. And I'd never been a part of anything like this before. And I started to realize that this is something really special. I didn't know where it was going to go. I saw a lot of cameo, big, big name 
um, people that were on the um, on the call sheet at the time. And I was like, wow, these people are on this film. And they're like, whoa. I was like, hmm. If they're on this film, they're making no money because nobody had any money. And Cage was making next to nothing on the movie. Um, so, And, of course, I was making peanuts. I think I made four or 5,000 bucks on the whole film. And, uh, and so, but I, I kind of got the gist that everybody was in it for the love of the art of this particular script. And I thought, I'm just going to do it because I'm here and I'm definitely not going to quit. And, uh, it was a real different experience. It was like being on a high end student film to me. Right. Uh, the camera operator was, was also, was Irish, um, was also the cinematographer. So he had double duty to do. So you talk about a low, low budget film and, uh, and Cage, I stood in for, for Cage, of course, and I did everything from the driving shots to all the scenes, to all the rehearsals, to everything he was doing. I don't think we ever spoke in the entire movie, I'll tell you the truth, Daryl. He was so engulfed in his character the entire time. Wow. I was on there being him the entire time, and I think he was incredibly focused, which he always is. Um on that film, in that character, in his mind, knowing it's going to really bring him forward in a, in a, with a very critical acclaim. I don't know about an Academy Award, but while we were shooting it, I knew that this was going to be a special film with some kind of accolades of some sort. And uh, so I kept my cool. I didn't say a word. I was very obedient. I was also the um, uh, part-time PA. I had a walkie. I kind of instructed Nick in all the scenes when we were on locations. So I would also tell him action, rolling, this and that, because we didn't have enough crew. So I kind of played double duty. Then I was also the second boom operator, in addition to being uh wow. I was very – I got no money for anything. I, I had multiple roles. They kept asking me if you could do this and that. I'd never done anything before. And I realized they were in a crunch. I was never going to ask for anything. I said, sure, I'll do this. Sure, I'll do that. I didn't know if I could achieve it, though. Um, and they kind of said, can you drive the car? Can you drive the BMW? Can you drive there? Do you have a California license? Can you slow down? Can you do it at 10 miles an hour, you know, 40 miles an hour? Because you have to do all these moving shots. And I said, yes, I can. Yes, I can. So I ended up doing all this stuff there without knowing that I was doing it. It kind of happened the moment of. They're like, well, Marco, get in the car and drive the car down Sunset Boulevard and blah, blah, blah. Here's your walkie. Talk to us on channel one. Okay. Uh, what speed do you want? Try 30 miles an hour. Okay. Slow it down. Make it 20. You got it, sir. And that's how it went. I just listened to them. Uh, Mike Figgles was very generous with that. He appreciated the fact that I was um, on it the entire time. And I think Cage loved it because it just made the job easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're picking up all this experience as the movie goes along without even realizing it, I suppose, filling in for all these gaps there. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're primarily there as a stand in, you're keeping your eyes on Cage and what he's doing. And as you said, there was, I suppose, a vibe that there was some acclaim coming. I suppose jumping ahead a little bit when Cage does win the awards for this movie, was there anything in your personal experience? Um, did you find that anything? sort of changed after he'd won the awards about him for yourself or did he sort of remain uh, the same person that you'd, you'd started coming to know working with him as well? I think he was always the same person right to the very end, Daryl. Um, I think that he was building a brand the entire time. He's a very mm -hmm. smart man. He's like Madonna. He knows how to craft himself. 
He knows how to work the system. He was born and bred in the system. He's very intelligent. Um, he knows when things are silly. He knows when they're not. He knows how to work things on a film set. He knows how to keep quiet and he knows when to speak. And unlike myself, I learned a lot about that through him because I'm kind of a babbling kind of bullshitty kind of boy. And <laughs> I think that he knew that he, when he won the Academy Award, he felt he deserved it. I felt he deserved it. And I realized that things are going to change and I'm going to be now a part of an entourage going forward because now he's building stunt guys, hair, makeup people. He's building a brand and the studios are backing him up financially, which means they back us up. So now he can start commanding certain things that he wants so he can concentrate more on his brand as he builds it. And he wanted to venture out and do The Rock and other big films and stuff like that, and then go back down to like art films and suspense films. And he wanted to work with all choice directors. And at the time he was having those choices. He, he was in demand. Mm -hmm. Things were just kind of like flying and they were so fast. And the man does not sleep. The guy is a workaholic. Nobody can keep up with this guy. And he looks like he's doing nothing on set. He looks like he's just sitting back. This guy is on fire 24 hours a day. And he doesn't say he literally sits for hours on the set and just watches. He could direct the movie from just what he saw. I mean, it's phenomenal. And it took me a while to figure out that this guy mentally runs the entire set. Wow. I kind of, it took me a long time. I was like, how does he not miss a beat? He knew everybody's name on the film set. He knew the positions of everybody. He was well aware of that. Plus, he knew all the actors, all the lines of every actor, and never fumbled a line ever in all the movies I'd done, which I thought there was no way he was going to get all this shit done. And he kind of surprised me each and every time because I didn't see them with all the actors, Daryl. I saw them fumbling and missing marks and, you know, overstepping words and lines and out of character. And I kept looking for it in him. I, I got to tell you, I was looking for flaws, and I didn't see them. Every rehearsal was done to a T. The close-ups mimicked the wide shots, the over-the-shoulder shots, the medium shots. There was no, what did I do in that shot? He knew exactly what he did, and he knew how to reenact that scene, whether it was a close-up or a wide shot. I'd not seen that with other actors. So I was really quite taken back by it. So he was building a brand. He was the same guy he's always been in my opinion, except that he now has the opportunity to shine the way he wanted to shine. So I would say he was the same. Just now he's going to go. Now he's going to be in command. I mean, from everything you described there and from much that I um, learned about him through this podcast as well, it became very apparent uh, and clear that he's very aware of himself, very aware of his perception and there is apparently, you know, no one more prepared on any movie set than Nicolas Cage, oh, which I've always found fascinating about him. And the way you describe him as well started turning cogs in my head. I think very apropos at the moment, it does make him seem like just a, a movie Superman. And I sort of crowbar that kind of link in. I see, you know, the, the Flash has been out, and we've had that long-awaited Nick Cage Superman cameo. Uh, obviously, going back to you know the '90s as well, when it really was, I think, such a hot streak of movies for Nicolas Cage following leaving Las Vegas. Um, we got the 
maybe one of Hollywood's greatest what-ifs, that Nicolas Cage was nearly Superman. There are photos that exist that you can see. I remember I, I showed my, uh, my girlfriend a picture of Nicolas Cage in costume as Superman, and her reaction was, what the hell am I looking at right here? Um, so uh, were you sort of there as brief as it was on that Superman reproduction sort of um, business as well? Did you get to try on the Superman suit for a time? Uh, you're not going to believe it, but yes, I did. So <laughs> wow. I really did. And, and I actually have a photograph of me in it. And uh, thank God it's a suit that makes you look like you have a body. And Nick uh, <laughs> Cage did have the body because he worked out every day in a trainer on set. So he was ripped like Superman. And then they put on the suit to make him double ripped. Mm-hmm. Whereas you had to roll up the flaps to get the rubber suit on and to zip it up. And the, the bulges are coming out the top. And it was like, I'm like shoving down my fat. <laughs> really a tough fit for me. Um, I wasn't there, um, during their costume rehearsals. And so I never read the script. I heard about the script later on. I said the same thing. I'm like, what? Nick is going to play Superman? That sounds ridiculous. But all I thought about was Superman, the Christopher Reeve stuff. I didn't realize it was going to be a completely different concept. I just thought it was going to be a remake. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anything about it, just like nobody else did. So the concept of Nick Cage being Superman really didn't fly in Hollywood because it was perception of like, he can never play Superman. Are you guys crazy? He's not good enough. He's not great enough. He's not Christopher Reeve. He's not body enough. And that, and that, that I, I said the same thing. I'm like, wow, this is going to like ruin his career. But I'd never read the script and I didn't know much about Tim Burton. And he had this super dark script. And when I heard and read certain parts of the script, I thought, oh my God, he's fucking perfect. <laughs> and I thought, you cannot do this movie without him. That's all I thought about, only because I kind of felt the inside of it. But a lot of student executives obviously didn't think that way just because they didn't think it would be commercially viable and it's just never going to work. Mm-hmm. But uh, I loved his long hair that he had tried on with the wigs and stuff. And I thought, you know what? This is really going to work given the context of the script, not just the perception of Superman, but where this particular story is going to go. And and I think that sure. I was pretty much the 98% that thought, what are you nuts? <laughs> they were nuts. They were really smart and crafty. They just couldn't convince the heads of the studio nice. that it's a great script with a different take. And if I was a studio executive, I would do the same thing. Scrap it. Let's get somebody else in there. Get George Clooney. You know what I mean? So it would be, <laughs> but that's without really knowing the script and, and the approach that the director was going to take. So, uh, and that's on, that's what I think fell apart i mean that's my opinion so it was a shame mm-hmm. that he didn't, but yeah he got the try on the suit and he did and so forth and you know i was actually kind of excited to be superman's double <laughs> <laughs> i mean that would have made for another incredible string in the bow of strings you're building up at this moment in time as well i've seen in terms of you know you mentioned sort of uh, the long hair and cage being in good shape obviously a good thing because we have you know cage's star is as high as it has ever been at this point following leaving Las Vegas. And we get the the run of, um, I think, what some of us in the Cage podcasting sort of circle of the world called the Testosterone Trilogy, uh, starting with uh, The Rock as well. Now, obviously, we have an, you know another 
a headline star in this one under Sean Connery, directed by Michael Bay. You know, by all accounts, this is a a big, big movie. So going from, you know, some tumultuous films to the acclaim of Leaving Las Vegas, and then you're working on uh, The Rock. What was that transition like for you? Because it's one of those things for me that always reminds you and something I always appreciate about Nicolas Cage in terms of the movie choices that he makes is that you never really know what's going to come next with him. Uh, you know, starting in sort of independent films and more sort of romantic stuff. And then he's going through action movies and then there's more sort of thrillers and sort of darker roles like this. But you're going from leaving Las Vegas to The Rock. What were you sort of thinking at this time with sort of the names that are on these sets? And what was your experience working with uh, Michael Bay and Sean Connery as well? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I think he's very character-driven. So he decided to make that 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 character a real character and not just some kind of a something. Mm-hmm. So he threw in his – I mean, the guy studies the characters inside out. And he has a lot of notes on stuff. He wanted it to be a character-driven actor's movie with action. I mean, there is no way that you're going to – Tell me, he already had perception of where it was going to go, uh, going on uh, on on the set. He didn't fumble a minute on that set, and I was blown away by how perfect he moved in every scene. Daryl, it was fucking hard to keep up with him. <laughs> he was so driven by the character and by the movie and by the situation that. You felt like he engulfed the entire thing. And it's really hard to stand off camera and watch him do this stuff and not really understand. Like, you look at the guy and say, God, this guy's like, he owns this movie. Uh, in my opinion, he outshined Sean uh, Connery. Just, just that's not everybody's opinion, but it's definitely my opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think he went out to do that, but I think that he was a young man and he really wanted to show that he's a good character actor and it's not just about leaving las vegas that he can do action movies that he can still be a a good character in an action film i think that was his goal and i felt he accomplished it personally um and uh and dealing with michael bay who is you know a loud screaming director and very energetic uh all day um i actually loved it Tell you the truth. I mean, he was a no-nonsense guy. He really pushed his shoved his way through everything. He fought with, you know, a lot of people between camera guys and DP and of course Sean Connery. And that was a, a big tiffy tiffy thingy. That nice. kind of like studio executives, a lot of issues happened back and forth, this and that. I don't know what the resolution was beyond between them all, but somehow we got back on track and we started to film again. Um, there was a lot of tension the entire time. There was a lot of money at stake. Um, there was a lot of pressure on everybody to get this film done correctly in San Francisco, all over the island of Alcatraz, back to LA on studio lots and super expensive. And I I think everybody just wanted to like get this thing done correctly. So Mm. there was no way I was going to fuck that thing up, but it kind of (laughs) shocked me. Like it was like, whoa, action, action, run me. I was the most unathletic fucker on the planet. (laughs) I was I could barely stand up while I was standing there on set. I could barely keep my eyes open. Um, it was so strenuous. The hours were nights and 
splits the daytime and I never slept well. That it was just, it was rough to be there. It was cold. It was winter. It was San Francisco. Then on in LA, it was of course nicer. But it was winter, and you're in, uh, you know, you're on, you're on these lots. There was a lot of pressure. A lot, lot of executives came on the set while we were in LA. And the set design was just brilliant, like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Everything was just phenomenal. There were a lot of issues the entire time. Not to get into it now, but uh, the movie was accomplished and became very successful. And with that, I, you know kept rolling on fantastic i mean you go from uh you know fighting your way through alcatraz to i think the the two movies that often end up in people's um the the ever-changing top five films of cage when you ask uh you know any you know tom dick and harry on the street where your favorites are and it's always even now though I've, i've seen these movies innumerable times i always find it's uh baffling that in 1997 uh Conair and face off are released within weeks of each other that is still insane to me i mean for yourself not just working in, you know and we'll get more into those individually but when you're there in 97 and these movies are coming out at the same time they're just crushing it at the box office um are you just sort of sitting there thinking like what the hell is going on this is crazy because it's still crazy to me I mean, it's still crazy to me. I mean, I can't actually believe I did those films. I didn't miss a day on those films. I worked day and night right through. That must have been like 18 months of work. And they were all action films. And this guy was buffed out like there's no tomorrow. The guy owned Superstar. His superstar stand, superstar stardom. He owned it. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. worked it. He owned it. He knew how to do the publicity. He knew what the characters were going to be like. He worked the characters. He worked the different images of the characters to look completely different. If you notice, all three characters were very different from The Rock to Con Air to Face Off. And he wore each outfit perfectly. Like he was three completely different people within a year of all those films being out. And I think it kind of like, whoa, who is that? Who's this guy? Like he really kind of set the stage. Like there are other actors who you kind of like, feel like they're kind of like the same in these scenarios. I felt like it was completely different. To me, it was like you, you, you his name was not Nicolas Cage. It was whatever the character was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was exhausted. I mean, I was physically beat. Conair was in four or five states filming in all kinds of places. And we were so far behind, like weeks over um, overdue. And then Face Off had already started. And they had a couple of weeks in the can already. By the time we got there, everything was like 18-hour days at that point. And I was on this roll with everybody that everybody was sleepless and working through this newfound fame. Everything was just kind of like insane. Everybody was talking about these things. And I thought, wow, and I'm working with him during this time. It, It became surreal at that point. I thought, I'm the most physically unfit person to be standing in for Nick Cage. And yet I'm on tour with this man. And it was, you know, because they had the stunt guys were always just like, do the thing. But yeah, yeah. He was there for all that technical stuff. And I'm not even a tech guy. So I was hearing it as these things were kind of like coming out. We were on uh, Snake Eyes in Montreal and filming that with uh, uh, Brian De Palma. And the fame that was coming through and people stopping him on the streets and all the interviews and the craziness. It was like being with a fucking rock star. 
And I, <laughs> and I had to keep myself really grounded. I'm like, this is insane. By then you're perked out. They put you up in hotels. You know, now you've got good salaries. You're on these contracts. You know, they're cages buying you gifts now because you're the guy. Yeah. So things really kind of took a turn. And it was like traveling with the Elvis Presley entourage. It, it was, honestly, it was a trip. And we were all tired, but everybody was like running through it constantly. I mean, at that, I suppose at that point as well, you know, Con Air and Face Off kind of explode in popularity. Obviously, the box office numbers speak for themselves even today. For you, um, you know, at what point did it ever, or did it ever really sink in that, like, holy crap, this is my life now? Um, was there a moment where you just had to sort of take? Uh, I guess just a second to yourself and think, what is happening in my life right here? This is crazy. Or, or was it something that it, it became a bit more, um, um, as part of the day to day, you kind of adjusted to it as time went on? I did adjust to it day to day, and I did realize that this is my life at this time. I didn't know how long it was going to last because different people in entourages kind of come and go. They either quit or they get fired, which is very normal. Mm -hmm. And on these film sets, as good as you are, you're still vulnerable. But I did take it for what it was. I mean, there were, you know, I had issues with people on sets. I had issues with Nick at times. Um, all my fault, I'm going to say, <laughs> because sometimes you just think you know things and you don't. And you think you're becoming some the guy. And really, yeah, you're a good guy, but don't overdo it. But when you're not really sure that you're overdoing it, you kind of get kicked in the head and say, hey, too much, tone it down. So there was a lot of that, but I, I did realize that I was on this role for a certain amount of time. And though it could end, I was, truthfully, I was socking away my money at the time. And, uh, and I was looking at investing all my money because I knew at some point this was going to end mm -hmm. because you just can't be a part of this rock entourage. Like, how long is this going to last? Mm -hmm. uh, he's going to last, but how long are we going to last? Hair, makeup, wardrobe assistants, standing stunt guys. Like, we're the vulnerable positions. We, we could be let go. So all that was always yeah. on my mind. So I just kind of, like, saved my money as best as I could and invested. And uh, I kind of took it with stride, but also knew that I was, you know, when you're walking through an arena, everybody looked at you and said, oh, my God, that's Cage's double. I'd love to be in that position. There were hundreds of people that came up to me and said, oh, my God, I want to be that. I can't believe you're doing this. Blah, blah, blah. How'd you get the job? You know, there were so many young people, and I was young at the time, that were so envious of the position. I almost didn't understand it um, just because I was so clued into what was happening with us. You know, you're reading the scripts ahead of time. You're reading the scenes. You're thinking of the locations. You're thinking of, like, oh, my God, it's an all-night scene. How am I going to rest? So you kind of, like, who pooed a lot of people. And I didn't really pay attention to a lot of people. I was thinking of like, how do I get enough rest to be able to do the next day scene? That was more on my mind. And just put the money in the bank market, do it greasy Greek immigrant style, throw it in the bank <laughs> and figure it out later. You know, don't go out shopping, just leave it and see what happens, you know, because how many years can it last? So I was, it was all about the work and it was all about trying to um, care for myself going forward. Because mm -hmm. after this position, Daryl, what the fuck am I going to do? Yeah. Like, uh, what do I go back to being a waiter? Like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be hitting 40. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? So I was very nervous. 
because at this point, I already had some fame of my own. I did a lot of interviews. Things were happening. Things were kind of crazy. And I thought, do you just go back to being an extra? Do you go back and be a waiter? You have this, people know you kind of globally. Like it was really bizarre. And what do you do? Fall through the cracks and get fucked up. So I just bought real estate. And I just thought, I got to work on that. That'll be my next gig. Uh, but I was, uh, yeah, I was following following the entourage. I was like three steps behind, but I was there and I was present. Sure. So obviously you've got to think about yourself in the present. You've got to think about the future, mind to the role as well. Obviously you do um, sort of face off and all this is sort of kicking off as well, going into uh, City of Angels and Snake Eyes and 8mm. Um, something else I wanted to ask about face off as well. Was this one of the more challenging roles for you in mind of being a stand-in? Because uh, this is one of Cage's, shall we say, cagier roles where he's playing himself and he's also playing John Travolta and they're swapping around. Did you therefore have to learn, you know, sort of the movements and the style of Cage and Travolta as well? I just copied Cage. Whatever he did, it didn't matter what character he was playing at the time. Whatever he did, I completely tuned out out of uh, out of you know out of the character part of it, and I stuck to the movements. I realized mm-hmm. that this particular film and every director works really differently. And at this point, I really figured out that directors, all directors are unique. All films have a of a different unique quirkiness. There's a certain format, but it goes up like this and down, but the format stays the same at the time. And I needed just to stick to the technical side of this. And whatever he was doing, I had to do. That's mm-hmm. all I thought about. I was thinking, well, I'm going to switch characters. There was none of that. <laughs> there, there was, <laughs> it was like if he's standing as whomever he was, he could have been standing in as Bugs Bunny. I'm standing there in that thing technically. Because uh, dealing with John Wu, he's a real technical dancing style director. He liked a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. So I re- that movement was very important to him. And the characters were already character-driven and they're, they're actors, so they knew what they were doing to begin with, that it really became a technical film for me uh, because that's the way I saw it through John Wu's eyes. And I thought, just go through the motions, Marco, and let them do their dance. And that was my entire approach to that film. It was fucking hard to work on that. I would say it was one of the hardest movies I've ever done. But it was the most rewarding, the most fun because of John Wu. And the crew was great. But John Wu kind of set the stage on that one. And uh, and I really enjoyed it, despite the insane hours and insane locations that we worked on. I just didn't know if I was physically going to get through it. I'll tell you the truth. I was ready to like call out a day and go home and just sleep for a year. Because uh, that was the third action film in a row. I was beat. And I'm not athletic. Cage was like. Boom, on it. The whole time, fucking on it. I was like, just want to go to bed. That's all I want to do. <laughs> and uh, he was wild the entire time. So, um, yeah, I, I went through the motions in that film as best as possible, but I was well aware of what was happening. And I knew it was going to be a huge hit. Huge. I thought this is going to explode. And, and explode it did and i think you know in no small part to the direction of john woo as well um who you would go on to work again with later in wind talkers a few years down the line um you know i was curious what your experiences of working with john woo were on face off compared to wind talkers 
actually reading about Wind Talkers, um, uh, a World War II film, another war film following Captain Corelli's Mandolin. And one of the things that I sort of read about a lot in regards to Wind Talkers is that uh, many people peg this as um, Wu's breakout Hollywood movie. And allegedly there was a lot of studio interference, which is said to be one of the causes why Wu didn't work in the Hollywood system for, you know, about another 20 years on this. Um, how was the difference in working with Wu between these movies? And in terms of how true or not that may be, what did you sort of see or know of in terms of the interference with Wind Talkers as well? I felt it was uh, studio driven in terms of direction on Wind Talkers because the budget was so ridiculous, approximately 140 million. And uh, I don't know if the, the studios actually believe that John Wu could succeed in this war story. And, uh, and there were executives on set all the time. Um, and, and I would just hear certain things, but I didn't know anything about anything other than gossip. Uh, I felt like it was a, a real tough film to work. And I think Wu was still, again, stylized through action and movement. And the actors kind of like, spoke for themselves. They were very fine actors. He cast very good actors to play the roles. Mm-hmm. Nobody was messing up. Every single actor, to my surprise, as small as the role was, Daryl, came up to bat 100%. They gave it their 100% all the way through. I, I didn't think it would happen that way, but everybody was like this. And it was a massive, massive crew and stunt team and extras. The whole thing was crazy. And I, I think that the studios always thought this is like way over the top in terms of budget and were never really comfortable with the process of this film. Mm-hmm. And then the distribution and the dates and so forth. And, you know, can this story really work? Does it have universal appeal with the native Indian thing and blah, blah, blah. They didn't, I don't think that they thought of it as a global film and that they thought maybe Cage would just carry this through because maybe the storyline wasn't you know, going to carry through. So a lot of people are interested in the storyline, to be honest. You know, even if they like Cage, they may not see him because, eh, war thing, all the things. You know, so I think that the studios thought on a marketing point of view, it's like, eh, I mean, he's not John Wayne. You know what I mean? (laughs) I I kind of think that it it became kind of that. And uh, then there was a lot of hooing and hawing. I've heard executives got fired, managers, agents got fired afterwards when, Studios lost you know, at least a hundred million plus dollars, which is a huge amount of money at the time. Yeah. It was a billion today. Um, so those were the things that were echoing around. I stuck to the job that I possibly could do, which was hard for me. So uh, luckily, my stunt guy, our stunt guy, kind of did most everything. So I was kind of like free and easy at that time. So stunt guy, you know, it was very stunt oriented. I did minimal stuff with it. So. I have a lot of funny stories which I'm not going to tell you now. We'll run an hour or two hours and we don't have another two hours on the podcast. No, so unfortunately not. Um, so obviously you got to work with um, a number of sort of fantastic directors. Uh, Adaptation follows this. Um, another critically acclaimed movie. Um, what was your experience on this work with Spike Jones? Um, did you sort of have to play uh, both the Kaufman roles as well? Again, I, I copied Cage in whatever character that he was playing. So to me, it was one and the same, Daryl, uh, is the truth. I just switched shirts. <laughs> <'Cause> Harry <laughs> similar, 
So I did have the hairdo on and everything else, but I would just, you know, if he would play, uh, you know, depending on who he played, I would just switch the shirts. We had a rack on the side, change the t-shirt, change the shirts for color cover, and then jump into whatever character that was. We always had the script with us. So Cage never messed it up. He was, uh, yeah. he flipped and forth and back and forth. You got to see the guy on set. When he was on adaptation, it would just like, because you would shoot the one character and then flip and shoot the other character, because they had it set up that way, he would just flip into characters within five minutes. Just boom, boom. And they would just, you know, change them, put on his hair, hair makeup. And I watched him. I sat off the sidelines watching and I thought, wow, he just jumped boom, 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 boom. Memorized all the lines, character, movements. I just stood there and watched in awe. And I yeah, thought, yeah. As I thought, he's going to not get this shit done right. <laughs> and because I was confused when I was reading it. He, Donald, Charlie, Charlie, Donald, Donald, Charlie, Charlie, Donald. Done. End of day. Good night. That was it. So what was tough, I think, was the big fat um, prosthetic wetsuit because it was very sweaty. The studios were hot. Mm-hmm. So I put it. 90 pounds for him. It was always hot and sweaty. The lights were like being on a Broadway show. It was very difficult for him. And uh, and he had to keep the cool the entire time. It had to be washed every single night and dried overnight the next day. The budget was low. They didn't have a lot of fat suits and so forth. And my fat suit with a, was a pillow with a Velcro belt and then the T-shirt over it. So that's what I wore as the fat suit because they didn't have any money. So I just got a cheap um, hotel pillow. And just kind of around my body and threw the uh, T-shirts over it, shirts. Uh, And again, I copied Nick and whatever he was doing. If he sat on the bed, I was there on the bed doing whatever he was doing. Um, Initially, they were not so into me, meaning uh, the director and the DP, because I was such a low-budget film. And at this point, I was kind of a diva. And I was, was, you know, well-compensated and paid for and, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I knew I was going to be good on set for them, but they couldn't understand why I was making so much money and they're flying me in from Canada, throwing me into a hotel. And, it, you know, there were a lot of issues between production and me. So I was very nervous. So the director was kind of dismissing me as like, why are the fuck are you on this set? You know what I mean? Let's just get a regular stand for 150 a day. Like you're costing us a zillion dollars because it takes away from the budget. Production mm-hmm. manager, he- because of that and i wouldn't bow down i i said no this is this is the fee this is the price and i'm gonna make it worth it you know you're gonna see why i'm on that set and and i mean i proved that i was worth my money but uh and at the end of it all spike jones wrote me a beautiful letter handwritten letter and said you were amazing your contribution to the set was we needed that and you were actually worth every dime that you were fantastic amazing i couldn't believe it i still have the letter and he was just so thrilled that I was there. And then he gave me this like signed picture book and all the stuff. I didn't ask for anything. Wow. He offered it. And same with the DP, who at the end was like, you were just amazing. You kind of put this thing together, blah, blah. Because they thought I was just going to hang there and stand there and just like, yeah. I went through everything that they told me in character as best as I could without mocking Cage's character. I did whatever they could to really set that stage, right down to the nudity scenes, to the jerk-off scenes, to everything else. I didn't say no. I did all of it, you know, and, and it's wow. a lot intended to do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did everything. They said, would you mind getting naked and, and jerking off and doing these things, you know? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah I'm going to do everything because I'm dedicated to doing this, and this is my job. 
And they were amazed that I actually did everything. And Cage actually thanked me for that as well. So, uh, yeah, I was paid well, but I certainly came to bat, you know, at the same time. So, And then Spike Jones was just great with me. And obviously the guy's now a legend. He's, you know, he himself is just this wonderful guy. Amazing. So I mostly knew Spike Jones from um, the Jackass stuff prior to that as well. So when I saw his name attached, I was like, well, never judge a book by its cover. That's on me. <laughs> um, obviously, conscious of time. So sort of, I would like to, you know, skip ahead as, as many questions as I'd love to pick your brains about. We get towards the sort of end of your time uh, with Camp Cage, I suppose. We're going to 2003, sort of 2004. And at this point, we're looking at National Treasure, Lord of War, The Weatherman. Um, the Weatherman, I'll say as an aside, one of my personal favourite Cage movies. I think it's fa- a fantastic comedy. Um, at this point in your um, standing career with Cage, you know, in your own words, you're uh, a bit of a diva. You're justifying the wage that you're getting. Um, you're getting flown out. You're earning this wage. So, at what point in your mind? Um, does it come to you to think, I think I'm getting to the point where I'm done. I think I'm getting to the point where I need out of this to do something else. Um, at that period of time, sort of where, where was your mind at? Um, and what was sort of the impetus of the decision? Like, I think it's slowly time to start cutting ties with this element of the business as well. I, I started to feel it on, on uh, national treasure. It was mm. a big film. Again, we were a, five states over five months they were working that thing plus some reshoots and that kind of stuff and i started seeing my life as being extremely empty and living for being on a film set and i realized mm-hmm. that this man will never stop working never <laughs> i thought and it wasn't even money i think at that point i just think he's just character driven and i thought fuck he'll do a small film a big film an action film this and this as long as my body, by this time, my back was shot, my knees were shot. I was, you know, very lonely in life. Uh, but I carried through that film. I finished that film. The money was driving me, I will say, uh, residuals and so forth. And mm-hmm. uh, I was really feeling it on National Treasure. And I thought, I got to wind down and get out of this business because it's uh, I'm approaching 40 years old. I'm by myself. I don't have a life. Nobody knows where I am in the world. Like, the world is fucking crazy. And... Uh, and by the time, so I, I had already made up my mind that I'm going to shut it down. And I thought I should kind of like kill it around weatherman-ish. When mm-hmm. I got on the weatherman, I actually got super weathered. <laughs> and I, was, <laughs> you know, I was sick and had pneumonia and had frostbite and all this other shit was going on. In and I was really cold standing outside in the cold of Chicago without a coat on because the character always had a trench coat on. Mm-hmm. and. Well, I had to have a trench coat on it, and I hate the cold. So I, I really, <laughs> this is like yeah. not working for me. And what am I doing in life? I saved up a lot of money at that point, and I thought, okay, I'm doing well. I need to move on in my career. I need to change things. I've built up enough wealth that I can actually walk away from this and start a new life because otherwise I'm going to go down under. And then I, I quit on the weatherman a few times, and then they offered me more money to do Lord of War to go to Africa, which I didn't want to do. Because my 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 old man was very sick and he was on his on on his last legs and I thought oh, I don't want to go blah 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 I should my mom had just passed away and I thought mm. a lot was going on I thought no I'm just not going to go and I should kill it here in Chicago but I took it for the money and uh, 
and it was a tough, for me, it was a miserable shoot. I hated it. I couldn't wait to get on it at that point. It was over. There was, I mean, I was, ha- I was on the film knowing that I was done. Like there was mm-hmm. no going to stay. I didn't care what they were going to say to me. I'm done. And during that time, the old man was like you know, passing away. And I thought, as soon as the movie is done, I'm done. And lo and behold, my thoughts were his thoughts too, because he was done with me as well. Because I was nice. a little over the top in the movie. And uh, I probably would have fired me too if I was him, if I was in Africa. And I think I kind of set that stage up like there's no way to get out of this film business. The only way to get out of it is to fuck yourself. And I kind of fucked myself over while I was down there. And then when I got back, I got the call that you fucked yourself over. You know, thank you so much for being with us. We love you, but we're leaving you now. It was uh, really quick. And I wasn't hurt by it at all. I was just like, you know what? I think it was time. It was like a divorce. We just needed to divorce and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Better for both parties. So as quick as you were in the business, as quick as you were out. And I realized also, Adara, my body was suffering. I, you know, you're you're not going to the bathroom like at a regular pace because you're on set. There's only one representative standing in for Nick Cage, and that's me. So every single shot, every scene, every angle is really all about me being him. And when you have bathroom issues and you have to constantly come and go, you end up eating the wrong foods so you can constipate yourself and not hydrate yourself, which is why I went to the hospital several times while I was filming and so forth. And uh, I got sick an awful lot. I think I went to four or five different hospitals because I was constantly dehydrated. Because the more you drink water, and like you have to be in a bathroom. And mm-hmm. bathrooms are mm-hmm. available when you're in driving shots, you know, driving across a highway. <laughs> so <laughs> it became, uh, I thought, what am I fucking doing here? I'm just like a fucking waiter. I got to get out of this shit. So when I'm a waiter, at least I can go to the bathroom. So it <laughs> a lot about bodily function. And uh, and bodily in mind, I had to like change everything. And I thought, no, this is an unhealthy environment in this position for me. And it's fine if you're a grip and electric because you can tag team. You got five or six of them on set. They can just say, hey, guys, I'm going to go 10-1 and then just take off. They got other guys to cover. There's nobody to cover me. So it was increasingly difficult. And, and a lot of ADs were critical of me because they're like, fuck, you're this high-paid fucking diva, and you need to go to the bathroom all the time. What are you doing? Stop drinking water. You know, don't eat a salad. It makes you go. You know, I would hear that, and I thought, I'm dying inside. I gained a lot of weight because of it at the time, and then I had to get back to my regular weight. Uh, but yeah. it was I realized it was an unhealthy position for me, and I just had to go and move on. Because... Mm-hmm. So I, you, you, you can never relieve yourself on set. Wardrobe can relieve themselves, hair, makeup, um, uh, PAs. I couldn't because I was the only guy setting up every single shot. And time is money. So if you went from one shot to the next shot, it's me setting up everything. So who else is going to do it? So I realized I've got to get out of this profession. Though it served me well in Cage, of course, it was because of him I flourished, I got to tell you, 100%. I would have been a waiter today. Um, because of him, I'm in a very comfortable position, and I, I, I did have the foresight to make good investments, but I didn't have the money to do it until I met him. So, um, yeah, I suffered physically in different ways, but then it was right. It was the right time to call it a day and, and let the world kind of keep moving forward. 
Yeah, the world's got to keep on spinning. And obviously, you've got to put yourself first because I know they say some at some point, if you don't make a choice, then your body will make that choice for you. Right. Um, so obviously, the right time for you to get out there. Um, and obviously, obviously, you have your thanks to Cage, irrespective of how it all sort of ended there, to give you that position. He has my thanks. I wouldn't have started a podcast without him being uh, born into the Coppola family and then cast into Hollywood as well. Um, but as we sort of start wrapping down here, uh, one of the questions sort of, I guess, in closing, I wanted to ask of you as well. When looking on your website, there is just this incredible plethora of pictures you've taken from your career across the years. It's this um, such an interesting chronology of uh, your life and behind the scenes. But of all those photos, all those memories, and with that sort of focusing on Cage, was there... Um, or is there any special memory or experience with Cage that has always stood out for you? Um, as if, like, if anyone asked me about Cage, this is the kind of guy that he is. You know, there are many, and I will be here forever. But but one was that he insisted on me being on a contract and being well compensated, and actually stopped the scene in a shot that we were doing on Face Off and demanded. I'm on a contract to be paid for my services uh, right in the middle of shooting. Uh, and because wow. that was more important to him than the shot, which costs a lot of money. And I was taken back by it because who in their fucking right mind would stop a shot on a big movie to say, hey, this guy needs his deal. Why are you fucking him over? And uh I didn't think anybody would come to bat for me in any capacity, let alone the boss. And he did that for other people. I'm not the only guy, but it was the most visible time because it was literally the middle of a shot. And that is one thing that forever will stand out for me because I don't think it's ever been done before in Hollywood to that degree. Usually the behind the scenes, this guy was like, no, get this guy doing the thing or you're fired. You know, it was very simple. And everybody had to bounce up and down. Everybody gets paid for their work. The guy is all about that. You'll never hear that, Daryl, from other people. You know, you know what I mean? You you hear kind yeah. of loose stories, but the guy made sure that everybody was well compensated. We were gifted. Um, everybody had their place. He was an equal opportunity employer all the way around. And I kind of carry that through to this day in my own personal world. I learned from him. And this is a big fucking movie star. Like to do this stuff, Daryl. Like it just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So I would say that that would be the the one, but there are many. That's incredible to hear. To know that he he cares for his people. Um, he's and I've always found that through following the career that um, he doesn't consider himself, uh, you know, a, a mega star that he rightfully is. He considers himself just a guy, an actor, a student of the game, and he's never put himself above the business, which I've always found so humbling about the man. Um, and it makes my life easier and more comfortable following that as well, to know that he's, uh, you know, not a, not not a complete villain. So that's always very, very comfortable and comforting as well. Um, but certainly with that said, and sort of wrapping up as well, because uh, you're a very busy man, Marco. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak to me today. It's been an absolute 
a privilege and a pleasure to sort of pick your brain. I wish we had another hour, um, but that's the way it goes. But for the listeners listening, where can we find you? And sort of what are you up to? What's coming? What's coming up with you yourself, Marco? Well, I know it sounds silly. I had that short film, which was fairly successful about my time with Cage. And now I'm actually finishing up a feature documentary that I'm producing on it. Um, basically, it's about my story in the business, not so much about Cage, but about me. And mm-hmm. I'm working on a book and a TV series. So all on the same subject matter and, and different capacities. And, and what the business is all about from my perspective, uh, from being that fly on the wall working for a Coppola clan, and just general what the business thinks about the underserved position of a stand-in, which is now going to get global attention. I didn't know what it was until I was in it. So I wanted to bring that forth, and I'm I'm working on these projects with a team, and I'm producing them all together together. Uh, so that's kind of like where I'm at, um, aside from, you know, on real estate holdings, this funds these, these projects until I, I sell them off um, – some streaming service uh, in Los Angeles. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see the full documentary. I can't wait for the TV series. I cannot wait for the book. Uh, Marco, uh, thank you so much once again for your time. It has been an absolute honor to have you on. Um, And hopefully we get to chat again sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you so much for reaching out. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. And there you have it, folks, my conversation with Mr. Marco Kiris. Thank you so much again to Marco for taking time out of his busy schedule to chat with me. What a pleasure it was. What a gentleman he is as well. There's so many more questions that I would have loved to have asked, but just got a bit conscious of time towards the end there. So unfortunately, I had to sort of skip ahead a little bit. But hey, who knows if you enjoyed the episode, hopefully we can reach out to Marco and maybe even do a part two someday. I'm very much looking forward to the book, the TV series, the full-length documentary as well, because I think that's going to be a very, very fun um, set of projects that are coming out very soon, so can't wait for those to be released. And again, if you enjoyed the episode, reach out on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on threads now, if you're on that, TikTok, and let me know what you thought. As for me, we've got some very fun episodes coming up. My episode on Renfield. Yes, Renfield. Don't worry, I didn't forget. It is coming out soon, followed by Sympathy for the Devil, which will be releasing in the US on the 24th of July, followed by its European premiere at the Fright Fest Festival in London on the 28th of July. So the episode will be coming out after that, give you a chance to see it, because we will be getting into lots of spoilers as well. And after that, we've got the retirement plan coming out. We've finally got a trailer for the retirement plan. So lots of cage to look forward to. And aside from that, if you weren't aware, I do have a side project podcast called Getting Defoe You, a dedicated Defoe podcast in which myself and fellow Cage podcaster Petros Patsilavis have joined forces to cover the entire filmography of one of Hollywood's other wild men, Mr. Willem Defoe. At the time of release, we are powering through our first season. We're having a lot of fun recording that as well, so all the links to that in the description down below. 
So that just leaves me to wrap up this week. So thanks again for being a pal, being a friend, joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana. We ain't slowing down yet. No, sir. No, ma'am. No, how. And we will catch you soon in the next episode of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. Hey. Hey. Hey.